This morning I want to try to keep it short, to the point, and not belabor this subject of baptism and church membership. You good people do not deserve to be drugged through all the arguments pro and con that can be raised on this subject, for it is no controversy here as far as I know. And we're not going to let others create a controversy for our church. I am close, very close, to finalizing about a 25-page outline on water baptism and church membership. That's single-spaced, and it is a nightmare. But I hope it will be helpful for any who want to go through every argument that I hope can be raised for the way we understand the relationship of water baptism and church membership and and an answer to every argument that's ever been tried to be raised for the opposing position that water baptism causes or results in church membership. But I'm not going to drag all of you through it. Most of you wouldn't even know what we were talking about because some of the arguments, many of them, are so ridiculous as to be above or below you people, for you people are above them, but they're in the outline. You can study them if you wish to look at them. I simply want to establish a foundation in this church for what we do. We can be content with that, and we can go on in the things that we ought to be doing and studying and not let our lives be controlled by controversy. Amen. It's been no controversy here. I simply wanted to lay out to you in plain terms where I stand and where this church is going to stand and where the Word of God stands. Before we look into it again this morning, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. O Lord our God, we come before Thee again. We have joyful hearts. We are glad for all the good things that You have blessed us with in Your mercy and Your truth. But, O oh Lord, we also have weak minds. They're feeble. We live in temples and tabernacles of flesh. See our weakness this morning, the weakness of both speaker and hearer, and grant that we might have a short period of tranquility here, whereby we might be instructed from thy word. Let us see it clearly, understand it clearly, and make a commitment to it that we will defend and practice the truth of God regardless of what the cost may be. Let us never be deterred, O Lord, from following hard after Thee. Let us not turn to the left hand nor to the right hand. Let us go with the plain statements of Scripture, and let us understand them by Your Holy Spirit. Be with us in this hour. We thank Thee for Thy good mercy toward this congregation. Continue to bless us with those favors You have shown us in the past, and with even a greater revelation of thy truth. Grant us the spirit of illumination that our understanding and wisdom in the things of God might be increased. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the head and the Savior of this body. Amen. Amen. Last Sunday morning, I handed out to you an outline describing several requirements to make a baptism scriptural, to make a baptism valid or legal. They were things that I had taught this church six years ago after I was ordained and became your pastor. 
We looked at them. We agreed that four of the five were still true because they were scriptural. But there was one point that is not scriptural. And I told you why I taught it to you. That's what I had been taught. And I had not studied the subject of baptism and church membership until June of 1986. So that meant that for one year and nine months, you were taught an erroneous point about baptism, and that is that it results in church membership. And I'm sorry for that. I wish it hadn't happened. But I did it with an honest and a sincere heart because it was all I knew on that subject at that point in time. I'm thankful for the challenge that came in June of 1986 that forced me to study it for the first time and realize that it's not taught in Scripture, that it cannot be defended, and that it's most unreasonable to common sense. Since that date, I have taught you little bits and pieces here and there that baptism and church membership are two very unrelated ordinances or commandments of Christ, and we've kept them separate in this church. Some of you caught on to that and asked me about it. Sue Eastland was the first one. She had been involved in a controversy on this subject earlier in her life, and she, having a mind to this distinction, quickly grabbed on the fact that I was drawing a separation between these two events, and I want to commend her for it. I want to commend all those who pay enough attention and who are bold enough to say something about what they observe. If we have a congregation of people like that, it will save this church from error. Amen. If we have people who just simply sit there and warm chairs and absorb what is taught without thinking and proving, we are headed in the wrong direction. I don't care who your pastor is. I don't care if it's the Apostle Paul. In Scripture, you're taught to prove him out whether he's teaching the Word of God or not. Right. and to call them in question. I hope I'll always be open to you calling in question something I might teach. Just because I don't convert when you raise some point doesn't mean I'm not listening. But I do want to listen and consider any argument that you might want to raise or question that you might have or comments you might have about something that's been taught from the Word of God. I told you last Sunday, it takes a little bit of knowledge to believe something. Most of you are in that category. It takes a little bit of knowledge to believe something. You're taught something, you say, that sounds good, and so you believe it. If you're ever called upon to teach something, it takes some more knowledge. Because then you've got to be able to get up and impart that knowledge to other people. You've got to have a storehouse that you can give out to others. But it's not until you are challenged and attacked on a point that you have to step back in a defensive mode and defend your position and handle all the parries and thrusts that might be made by the opponent's sword. Then you find out how strong your position is. And if it's weak, it bleeds very quickly and its life is over. If it's strong, then you're going to be able to take all the attacks of the enemy unless you're very incompetent. Hopefully the truth will defend itself rather easily if you're competent in the truth. Right. And you can defend yourself, but it's that challenge that forces you to reassess your position. I don't like the term an open mind. An open mind sounds like you're waiting for the devil to fill it with something. That's right. I don't like that term. But when you're studying scripture and when you're considering arguments, you ought to have an open <laughs> mind enough to be able to consider alternative positions that might satisfy scripture better than the position you hold. I hope to keep that kind of an attitude. That's right. That doesn't mean I'm wandering around in a nebulous fog 
and everything is 60-40 in the Word of God, and I'm running with 60, but there's a 40% chance that we're wrong. That isn't an open mind. That's a double-minded man who ought to be shot. The Word of God is not that vague. But I hope to always have an open mind, brethren, because the day we close our minds, we say that change is sin. And the day you say change is sin, you say, I love stagnation and death. Dead bodies don't change. Living bodies constantly change. That's right. And we shall change every time God shows us more truth, if that is his will to reveal more truth to us. Amen. Let's review briefly what we covered last Sunday. I am not going to belabor this point. God helping me, we will end it today in the two services that we have. And you know how long I could preach on 25 pages of single-spaced outlines. It could last a while. But there's no reason to drag all of you through that. Many of you did not even know there was a controversy. Many of you are probably still asking yourself, what is the point? What's the big deal? It's a deal. It's not that big because it doesn't involve our church. And because the way we look at baptism and understand baptism being a ministerial ordinance and an individual ordinance, what another church does with a baptism all of a sudden becomes a moot point. A moot point means don't bother yourself with it. That's right. Because baptism is a ministerial ordinance and an individual ordinance, not a church ordinance, it doesn't matter what another church thinks about baptism. We can take baptisms from ministers that might baptize thinking that baptism adds a person to the church. Because what a minister might think is happening when he drops a person into H2O, as far as the church is concerned, is irrelevant because the Bible doesn't know of such a thing. But if he wants to think that in his mind, that's fine. It doesn't affect the baptism. The baptism right. still meets the five requirements of Scripture. So right. see, it doesn't really bother us. It doesn't affect us. We can take such baptism. The first point I wanted to make to you last Sunday, the first point that deals directly with the subject, was to think about church membership. If you think about church membership, you will automatically and necessarily deny that baptism causes church membership. Yep. Only by being ignorant of what the Bible describes as church membership can you believe that baptism results in church membership because they are so unrelated. If you get a grasp of what is involved in becoming a member of a body of Christ, you know that water can't do it. And only those who want to give some sacramental power to the waters of baptism could even think it. Now that's a strong statement, isn't it? If you're thinking it is. Do you know what this first step that steps all the way halfway to baptismal regeneration is? Baptism results in church membership. Now you can say that's an easy accusation to make. I challenge any of you who want to test me on that point to read a Catholic theology and find out where they got their doctrine of baptismal regeneration. It begins with baptism resulting in church membership. Remember, of the 800 million Catholics in the world, 200 million don't know it. Because 200 million are babies that had water poured on their foreheads in the form of a cross, and at that moment became members of that church, although they didn't know it for the next ten years. And once you assign power to baptism, that God does something through baptism to make a person a member of the church, all it takes 
is a misunderstanding of what the church is to end up with baptismal regeneration. The minute you end, the minute you can make the church a spiritual body of Christ, then you have water getting a person into the spiritual body of Christ. And the minute right. you've got that, you've got baptismal regeneration. Right. You ought to read the Baptists who have put their ministries on the line against this doctrine because Baptists have always stood against baptismal regeneration, the sacramental power of baptism. Every other denomination in our country, for the most part, except those who are Baptists without the name on their door, grant a sacramental power to baptism. The Catholics give it full sacramental power. It regenerates the soul. But the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, and the Presbyterians and others grant a sacramental power to water baptism. Baptists have always stood against that. And the safest place to stand, and it is the scriptural place to stand, baptism doesn't do a thing for your soul. That's right. There is no sacramental value in it at all. It is a symbol of three things that we looked at, and we'll look at that in a moment. But I want to make that clear, where that came from, and I'll have more to say on that before we end today. If you can think about church membership, you are on the way to understanding this whole point. Remember, a church is a specific number of individuals voluntarily joined together to form a group to encourage each other in gospel duties to persevere until Jesus Christ returns. Can you follow all that? It's simple. There is strength in numbers. The Bible says two are better than one. The Bible Amen. says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The right. 63 members of this body, if they're properly performing toward one another, give us strength to hold fast our profession of faith until Jesus Christ returns. A church is a specific number. You are either in or out. There is no nebulous wondering about who makes up the membership of a specific church. There are a lot of people that think we're all the body of Christ. We're all in the church. You love Jesus, you're in the church. There are a lot of denominations that believe that way. Go visit their churches today. They will let you sit at the Lord's table with them as long as you believe in Jesus. They won't even ask you that. They'll just serve it to you. That's right. And it all starts down, downtown at St. Mary's. That's where all that's... You can walk into St. Mary's and take communion as fast as anyone. You can get in line and they'll say, the body of the Lord. What are they, let's see now. Uh, Behold the Lamb of God and stick, stick the Lamb of God in your mouth just as quickly as they'll stick it in their most faithful parishioner. That all opens up from misunderstanding a local church. The body of Christ is a specific number of people in a specific location who have voluntarily joined together with each other and have not joined together with anyone else. That is a church. Right. A local church is a group of baptized believers that are bound together by chains, by bonds, into one group. Remember the six chains that I described to you last Sunday that Scripture teaches that make up a church. Let's look at a few of these references. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. You say, shouldn't we be studying baptism? I say we begin with membership, and if you understand membership, the rest will fall into place so naturally you won't even have to work at it. Only by misunderstanding church membership can you believe that baptism results in it. That's right. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's something 
we are all called to do. That is to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in this body. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are called together in this church with one hope. We all have the same hope. We're called together in this church in one body with one faith. We unite ourselves together with one hope and one faith. That is a bond of this church. We don't believe all sort of different things about Jesus Christ, about salvation, about the fundamental issues of what God has revealed in Scripture. On issues of liberty, where God grants liberty, every member of this church can differ. But on the issues that are not matters of Christian liberty, we are supposed to be of one faith. That's the first bond of church membership. When a person comes into a church, they find out what that church believes, and they say, I believe the same thing. I place myself under that chain or under that bond. I become right. a member in that one body because I hold to that one faith and that one hope of our calling. And brethren, baptism doesn't accomplish that. Do you know what you have to believe to get baptized? Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. But now to join this church, we believe a whole lot more than that. Right. We believe a whole lot more than that. Proper evangelism would tell a person that Jesus, born in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, is God's Son, and you could get baptized. You wouldn't know a thing about a church. You wouldn't know what you were getting into when you agreed with the church to become a member. One requires more knowledge than the other. The first thing is we are bound together is one faith. We're bound together by mutual submission. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, since it's a reference that's close by. Chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And that is not children submitting themselves to parents. That's taken up in chapter 6. This is not wives submitting themselves to husbands. That's taken up in verse 22. It's not servants submitting themselves to masters. That's taken up in chapter 6 also. This is the submission that we all grant to each other. Each other and the things of each other become more important than ourselves and our own things. That is what is called in the Marines esprit de corps. It's what's called in team athletics team spirit. It's when you submit yourself to the overall well-being of the team. It means on a fast break that you don't necessarily drive to the basket and stuff it yourself, but you pass off to another player who may be running down the other side of the court. And let him get the two points while you get the assist. Right. That is what how a church has to function. We submit ourselves for the overall benefit and well-being of the body seen and together. That is the second bond of a church. And baptism doesn't cause that. Baptism doesn't result in it. In baptism, you probably don't even know about it if you're evangelized the way they were evangelized in the New Testament. But when you join a church, you are looking at a group of people and how they behave toward one another and agreeing, I will submit myself to that group. On the day of Pentecost, those 3,000 that were added to the church that day, you find them sharing and holding all things in common immediately after being joined to that group. That is not a light decision to make. That is submission to the will of others to the point where you would take all of your possessions and put them up for the common good of that church. Right. Now, God hasn't required that of all churches, but that church did it that way. And to join that church, you submitted yourself to that will. 
because there were a lot of poor Jews that were members of that church that had lost all their possessions because of the great persecution of the church. That doesn't come through baptism. The third bond that holds a church together. Let's look at Ephesians Well, chapter 4. Go back to 4. I used Colossians last Sunday. We'll use 4 this Sunday. Ephesians 4 this Sunday. I'd like to read the first three verses. This is the third bond that holds a church together and that makes a church member. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. It's called to be saints. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word that I want to pick out of those three verses is the word love. It's called the bond of perfectness in Colossians chapter 3. Love. When you join a church, you are agreeing to love the other members of that church in a special and particular way as brothers. You are going to forbear them in love. You are going to show long-suffering toward them. You're going to show meekness and all lowliness. It sounds like it's related to submitting yourself one to another, and it is, because they're all related. But it's the love that should hold this body together, and it's love that we have to work at, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that bond, if you go look in Colossians chapter 3, is the bond of perfectness. It's charity. It's loving one another that holds a church together, and getting baptized does not teach you how to love, unless, of course, you want to give it some regenerating power. Love is a commandment of Christ that you have to willingly and consciously and actively obey, and it's what God requires of all of us. When you join a church, you are placing yourself under a bond to love every member in that church in a very special and particular way. Bond number four. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 this Sunday. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We may have looked at it last week. I think we did. The fourth bond of a local church of Jesus Christ is the Lord's table, which we'll observe next Sunday. At that table, we see who are members and who are not. When we come to that table, which is governed in Scripture by very careful and strict rules as to who can participate there, and how we're to participate, and it gives you the authority of who participates there, we find church membership at its most plainest point. And that is the Lord's table. Because you all have the responsibility to include or exclude your brothers and sisters from that table. It's at that table where we raise a cup of wine which we understand to represent the blood of Christ and declare our unity together around the blood of Christ. We raise a piece of bread which we understand to represent the body of Christ and we show our unity around the body of Christ. So much so is it that way that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 we are called one bread. We are called one bread because we are one body and the bread represents the body of Christ. We are one bread and we show it at the Lord's table. It is called communion because it is a picture of our common union around the death of Jesus Christ. It is the focal point of church membership. And baptism does not cause that table to happen. Baptism does not qualify you for that table. The church qualifies a person for that table by either accepting or rejecting them at that table. Look at what the Apostle 
taught us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Does that mean, I pointed this out last Sunday, I want you to get the importance of this passage. Does that mean that you can't work for unbelievers? Does that mean you can't enter into a partnership with unbelievers? No way. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, you're going to company with the fornicators and the idolaters of this world. You're going to do it. And God has not called us to go out of this world, which is the only place we could fully avoid them. He's talking about the church relationship as a group of people. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Here are fellows coming together. That's what fellowship is. You've heard of doctors being granted their fellowship. That's because they're fellows together in some college of medicine or in some practice. They become fellows together with a common end. We can't do that with unbelievers. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? How can we hold common union with darkness if God has given us light? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God? See, that is the church. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Brethren, the 63 members that make up this church are the temple of the living God. That's what this text teaches. And that temple cannot have agreement with unbelievers. It can't have communion with unbelievers. This is a bond of our church. We are separate from all others. We are bound together. Notice the agreement necessary. How can two walk together except they be agreed? How can 63 walk together except they be agreed? And baptism doesn't cause agreement. Agreement is caused by finding out what you people believe and realizing that that same thing is found in our hearts. That's when the man walks forward in 1 Corinthians 14, falls down on his face and confesses, God is in you of a truth. Verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And brethren, we practice this passage most perfectly when we keep the Lord's table and when we exclude members from this church. That is a bond of the Greenville Church. That is a bond of the Church of Christ. Bond number five. We're bound together by congregational judgment. When a person joins this church, just like we did last Sunday evening, I ask them to look out at those faces of the rest of you members. And are they willing to submit to the judgment of this church in private matters of difference? Small matters, as 1 Corinthians 6 describes them. The matters of Matthew 18, where you are offended by a brother, you go to him, he doesn't listen to you, you take one or two more so that the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word can be established, he doesn't hear them, so you take it to the church. The church is then given the authority to judge in that matter and to decide the resolution of the difference. Small matters. God's already decided the resolution of large matters. Amen. But in those small matters, you are subject to the judgment of the church that is part of church membership, and every person coming into this church ought to know that point and agree to it. And baptism does not do that. Baptism cannot do that. Most people baptized in the New Testament didn't know anything about 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While the Apostle Paul was writing that to a church already in existence, they hadn't even been taught that. 
That's the fifth bond of a New Testament church. It's submitting to each other in judgment. The sixth bond of a New Testament church is submitting to the pastoral judgment of the man that God's put over that body. When a person joins a congregation, they have to realize they're going to be submitting themselves to the pastor of that church in the areas for which he is responsible. There are areas for which you're responsible. There are areas the pastor's responsible for. And a person joining a church has to submit himself to them or it's not truly joining the church. It's not truly becoming a church member. And brethren, all of that work to go through those six points again is for this point. Baptism couldn't cause one of them if you tried to stretch the water. If you electrically activated it, it wouldn't cause it. Baptism doesn't cause any one of those six things to occur. Those six things have to occur with a conscious, mutual, active consent and agreement between the body and the individual trying to get in to that church. And that comes well after baptism. Unless a person's been well instructed before baptism. How do you join a church? Let's look again at Acts chapter 9. I told you I never wanted you to forget it. Let's look at Acts chapter 9. How do you join a church? How does a church receive members? Acts chapter 9. Do you know if we didn't have Acts chapter 9, it really wouldn't make much difference? We have all, What we've already looked at is sufficient by itself to know that for a person to become a church member, there has to be mutual agreement on the six points that I've just raised if we didn't even have Acts 9. Because those six points are implicit. They're obvious. It's like the Bible doesn't ever tell you, in the, in the epistles anyway, that you have to use water in baptism. I know you're thinking I'm being absurd right now. Acts 2.41 says, Then they that glad to receive his word were baptized. Well, why doesn't it tell us that they used water? You know why it doesn't tell you that they used water? Because you know that baptism requires water. Do you know why it doesn't tell you all the time that people come before churches and make application through those six bonds? Because it's understood by reading the New Testament. The New Testament repeats those six bonds over and over and over again. They're implicit in your understanding of the New Testament. If you read the whole book and don't lay down one verse and think that you've got your doctrine stuck there. Acts chapter 9. The Apostle Paul was at Damascus. He was Saul of Tarsus. He leaves Damascus because the Jews try to kill him. And we read this in verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. Now there is a man, Saul of Tarsus. There is a church, the church at Jerusalem. Saul of Tarsus wants to become a church member at Jerusalem. Some of you may be asking the question I've been asked many times. How do you know that this joining means joining the church? What other joining is there? Did he want to join the lodge? Did he want to join the fraternity of the Knights of Columbus? Did he want to join their assemblies? Where have we ever read of an assembly in the New Testament church where they had bouncers throwing men out? And it's a valid question. It's a good question. I've asked it myself. What joining could it possibly be? It's joining the membership, the disciples there, and being considered one of them, being in common union with them. That's what joining means. You become attached to another. When Saul was come to Jerusalem, he is saved to join himself to the disciples. Now, when you essay to do something, that means you try to do something. You go through some procedure to make a desired end happen. Paul went through some procedure. What do you think it might have been? 
Was it to go to James and say, James, would you rebaptize me, please, so that I can be added to the Jerusalem church? Was it to go to the post office and get his baptismal certificate from Damascus to prove that really he was a member already at Jerusalem? What was it? We have to look at Scripture. And Scripture says, coming before a congregation, falling down on your face and saying, God is in you of a truth. A saying to join included, God is in this group here in Jerusalem and I want to be in that group. And brethren, I know you know me, Saul of Tarsus. I know that some of your relatives are in prison because of me. I'm sorry for it. But on the way to Damascus, Jesus Christ met me. And I've been converted. I met a man named Ananias in Damascus. He baptized me. I've been with the disciples in Damascus. After that, I've preached in the name of Jesus. And now the Jews are trying to kill me. I've been converted. God is in you of a truth. I believe what you stand for. I believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God. I want to preach His name. I want to commune at His table with the rest of you. That's what He did. We know He did that. We know he did that by the testimony of Scripture and by what the, re the last part of verse 27 tells us. Because Barnabas had to come from Damascus, who was a former member at Jerusalem. Why did they believe Barnabas and they didn't believe Saul? Barnabas was a member at Jerusalem before he went to Damascus. You can read about him a few chapters earlier. Barnabas was brought down from Damascus because after Paul went through that great effort to try to join. And can you imagine sitting in a church with Saul of Tarsus telling you he'd been converted? But they didn't believe it. They didn't get all excited and jump up and down about it. They said, we don't trust you. We don't believe you. We're not convinced yet that you've really been converted. So they sent the Camel Express to go get Barnabas. And Barnabas came down with verse 27. Well, verse 26 tells us, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. He was claiming to be a disciple. They didn't believe he was a disciple. This verse is so important. And I, 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 I feel pity toward half of you who don't even know why I'm beating this point. But there are people who believe that baptism makes church members. And I know for some of you that may be hard to believe because it's, it's not taught anywhere in Scripture. It's not even imagined in Scripture. There isn't a relationship in Scripture to even justify it. What causes church membership is right in Acts chapter 9, 26. It's one person trying to join by convincing a group he is a true disciple. And it's up to that group whether they want to believe he is a true disciple or to be afraid of him and not believe he's a true disciple and reject him. Right. It is the mutual consent and agreement between the two parties that make a church member. And in this case, Jerusalem said, we don't buy your testimony. And there may be a day in this church where when I say, if there is any reason why this brother ought not to be considered a member with us, one, two, or more of you may stand up and have an objection against his conversion, and brethren, that man will sit down until you are satisfied. What's the basis for that position? Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. That's right. And that is how we will do it. They didn't believe his testimony. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way. I mean... His testimony is true. God's visited him. And that he had spoken to him. And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas confirmed everything Paul would have testified of himself. And he was with them coming in and going out of Jerusalem. They wouldn't let him join. Then they did let him join. Whether it was two weeks or two months, we don't know the time it took Barnabas to get there. You didn't travel quickly in those days. Right. You didn't get the message to Barnabas that he needed help. 
that Barnabas took him and he became a member at the Jerusalem church. That's how church members are made. A church is responsible. You make members, you unmake members. A church excludes a member in the very reverse of the way they make a member. You receive or you reject based on God's judgments that he's, that he's given in Scripture and based on your own faith in the person's testimony. Now that is the nature of church membership. What about water baptism? These are things we covered last Sunday, but this is the, this is the foundation of the whole issue. What about the nature of baptism? Baptism is an individual ordinance. Church membership is a congregational ordinance. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and remind ourselves of that most important statement of the design, the purpose of baptism. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is like a father sitting a family down and setting the rules for dating. Here's why I'm taking my position. Here's the position that we're going to take. And this is what you're all going to submit to. I happen to be your father as your pastor. And this is the position we're going to take on baptism and membership. Here are the reasons for it. And I hope you look at it in just the same way. We are a body of Christ. And God has called me to instruct you in how worship is to take place in the New Testament. 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure. Noah's ark was a figure, but so is baptism. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And I want to focus on those words like I did last Sunday. What is baptism? Baptism is the answer of a good conscience. Baptism is one conscience giving answer to Almighty God in an individual ordinance in water that God has required. Baptism is the answer, it says... Jesus Christ is my Savior. Jesus Christ is my Lord by virtue of the fact He is the Son of God. And I baptize my, I'm baptized in water to show my relationship to Christ by my burial and my resurrection just like Jesus was buried and resurrected. It is one conscience back to God. It is not a public ordinance that we have to have a tank up behind the pulpit whereby every baptism has to be witnessed by the whole congregation, and the congregation votes aye or nay or stands or raises their hand in order to give approval for a baptism. It's not a congregational ordinance. A church, a church does not have the right to keep a person from baptism. A person is not obligated to go to a church for approval. A, an individual is making answer to God, not to a church. Brethren, are you happy with me now that I've been baptized? Did I answer you well with my good conscience? Baptism isn't that way. Baptism is to God alone. And God's representative is the only other person involved, and that's simply to get you up out of the water. Right. You could lay yourself down into it, but it wouldn't look much like a resurrection if you were crawling out of it. <laughs> it looked like you'd never die. But when someone lays you in the water and then raises you again, it looks like you were died, you died, you were buried, and you were, you were resurrected by right. a power outside yourself. There's only one person that qualifies a person for baptism, and that's God's administrator. The Apostle John stood at the Jordan River, in the Jordan River, let's get that right. He stood in the Jordan River, prostitutes walked up to him, and he baptized them. Tax collectors came up to him, and he baptized them. Religious people came up to him, and he said, get lost. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
you vipers, you serpents. The man coming after me is going to baptize you with fire. And now is the axe laid, and you've heard all that, Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Right. There was one man doing all of that, and that was God's administrator, John the Baptist. And guess what? I'm John the Baptist, too. I am neither Catholic nor Methodist. I'm John the Baptist, and will baptize the same way. If someone comes to me, no matter if they're an IRS agent or a prostitute, and they show due repentance, and they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, they're going to be baptized whether you people like them or not. Right. I don't see that happening in this city. But if I'm, if I'm ever on a trip to Anchorage and I meet some Eskimo there who, who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I will baptize him. And he won't become a member of this church just because I baptized him. There'll be another baptized disciple of Jesus Christ in this world. And it doesn't need to be a member of this church to become a disciple. That's right. He is a disciple by virtue of his allegiance to Jesus Christ in water baptism. Amen. Baptism is an individual ordinance. Let's look at Acts. Uh, we'll, we're going to get to Acts 8 in just a minute. We know what's in Acts chapter 8. Acts at chapter 8 is what is called in English a landmark case. That's right. A landmark case means a special, obvious case that shatters any presuppositions about baptism and membership. There you've got one administrator and one subject in the middle of the desert. I wonder why it occurred in the middle of the desert where Philip needed special transportation even to get to the guy. Because God wanted us to know there were not 300 people sitting in a church approving that baptism. Amen. And believe me, there wasn't a church on the planet at that time that would have approved that baptism. Right. You say Jerusalem would have... Well, let's think about that. Cornelius was baptized after the eunuch. How well did it go over in Jerusalem when Peter told them he had baptized a Roman centurion? Read, read Acts chapter 11. He was called on the carpet in front of the apostles and elders in the Jerusalem church to defend what he had done going into Gentiles, let alone baptizing them. You say, well, the Jerusalem church was open to anyone. Did they take Paul? The Jerusalem church considered their obligations of judging membership very carefully. That's right. They would not have taken a black, castrated Gentile. We'll get to that in a minute. One administrator, one subject. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Well, we need to find a church? No. We need to get church approval? No. What do you need? Do you believe? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is all that is necessary. They stopped the chariot. They went down into the water. And brethren, that event that took place in that little oasis in the middle of the desert on the way to Ethiopia is one of the great events of the New Testament. Amen. It shows one individual in this world, a black, castrated Gentile, that found a knowledge of Jesus Christ and gave an answer to God of a good conscience and became a disciple of Jesus Christ. And God blessed him with the gift of the Holy Ghost for that baptism because it says he went on his way rejoicing and there's only one source of joy in this world for a child of God and that's the Holy Spirit himself. Amen. He went on his way rejoicing. He didn't turn his chariot around and say, where's the Jerusalem church? He went to Ethiopia where he belonged. That's right. That is a landmark case. And when you can try to raise arguments to overthrow the Ethiopian eunuch, you are indeed resting scripture. That's right. Because there is no basis in all the word of God to try to overthrow what Philip did to the eunuch. 
You say, well, Philip went back and told Jerusalem they had a new church member. I want to ask you, what kind of a church member did the Ethiopian eunuch make down in Ethiopia? Right. You know, once we had 19 non-resident members, do you remember those days? Do you know how many of them we lost? Because that is not the way God has ordained it. Amen. And we have three right now that scare me and scare most members of this church to death. Because it is not the way for a New Testament church to exist. Right. We're into it now. But believe me, we're never going to have 19 non-resident members again. Right. Not as long as I'm your pastor. And I don't think as long as most of you are church members here. Amen. Because you know that it is not scriptural to have people sitting out there in the middle of Ethiopia claiming to be members of this church. What kind of common union is there? What kind of responsibilities are they fulfilling toward the rest of us? What kind of benefits are they receiving? Now, the brethren in St. Louis do one terrific job, don't Amen. they? Amen. The brethren in St. Louis are better church members than some of the resident members we have right here in Greenville. That's right. They communicate on a more regular basis with me and other members yep. than do some of the members right here. They contribute financially, faithfully. They, are, they try to stay as close to the action here in Greenville as possible. They are good members considering the obstacles they have to overcome. That's right. What's the order of evangelism? If you were to evangelize the way Jesus Christ commanded, how would you do it? You'd preach Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If a person said yes, you'd baptize them. Then you would teach them to observe everything else, including church responsibilities. Did you know that if you followed that pattern, it's impossible to take in a church member through baptism? They wouldn't right. even know what a church was. They just said and the example that we have in Acts is that many, many of those baptized in the book of Acts could not have known about church doctrine because all there were were a few minutes of preaching about Jesus and they were baptized. Then they're taught everything else that they're supposed to do. That is the order, and that's the order we'll maintain. Baptism's a ministerial ordinance. I think I've said enough on that last Sunday and this morning already. You make baptism a church ordinance, and you make me a Prince Charles. That is a figurehead nothing. And I serve my captain, the Lord Jesus Christ, who commissioned me to baptize. He did not call you to baptize. And I do not say that in any haughty way at all. If one of you were here and I was there, I'd be a happier man. And anybody who knows me knows that. But God called me to baptize. He did not call you to baptize. And I do not get my authority to baptize from some church. Because if I have to obey my captain in withdrawing from this church, I will still have the authority to baptize outside of this church and make disciples of Jesus Christ, form them into churches, and ordain other ministers to replace me when I die. Right. That is the authority God gave his, uh, his disciples. He left authority in this world, but he left them with men. He did not leave it with churches. Remember, baptism is a figurative ordinance. What is it? What is baptism symbolized? Baptism symbolizes the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism symbolizes our death to our old man and sins and resurrection to walk in newness of life. Baptism symbolizes our physical death that's coming and our hope of physical resurrection. Three things. Are any of those related to church membership? Where do you think pouring? There are theological considerations that most of you wouldn't care about. But when you go to pouring as the mode, baptism is no longer the symbolizes the three things I just mentioned. The Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, Lutherans, Methodists, Catholics do not believe what I just said. That's baptism right. is the symbol of regeneration that's by right. the pouring out of the Holy Ghost. That's right. And that's why they pour. 
And if you could see the connection, you would understand with fear how close giving sacramental value to baptism is to running right back into the arms of a mother we are supposed to have hate, hated and left long ago. Amen. Baptism symbolizes those things that has nothing to do with the church. The scriptures don't teach water baptism in church member resulting in church membership. It doesn't teach cause and effect. It doesn't even teach simultaneity. That means they both happen at the same time. Nowhere do scriptures teach. What are we to base our doctrine and faith on? There is no scripture that says baptism causes church membership. What happens when church membership is changed? What, what has happened if one of you were to leave this church and go to another church? I hope we could talk about it before you did it. But what of churches of Christ, like the Apostle Paul leaving Damascus, going to Jerusalem? Situations like that have occurred. We have several members that have come to our church from other churches. Do we rebaptize them? Why? Because it's totally unnecessary to them becoming members here. Someone will say, yes, but they've already become a member by baptism at another church. Do you know what that doctrine concludes? If any, For those of you with thinking minds, it means that two churches are actually one church. And we are right back into a denominational system of religion. Right. Our church is totally, I don't mean 90%, it is totally distinct and separate from any other church. Amen. Joining one church does not have any relationship with a second church because they are two separate bodies entirely. Yes, they're one in kind. Bob and I have bodies one in kind. They're male human bodies, but they're two distinct bodies. And the bodies of Jesus Christ are precisely the same way. Getting into one does not help you in the least to getting into the second one. The getting into the first one might have been real easy. You might have gone forward and said, I want a home in the church. And they all got excited and cried and took you in. The second time around, you might have to answer a few questions. It all depends on the individual church. Church membership can be changed. And how do you change church membership? And this is where it gets exciting because our opponents, brethren, our opponents who think that baptism results in or causes church membership deny it when it comes to every other church relationship. If you are excluded from a church and you want to get back in, guess how they think you get back in? By mutual consent and agreement. If you go from one church to another church, guess how they think you get in to the second church? By mutual consent and agreement. Should we rest our case? Because they don't want to baptize 40 times in a lifetime. They say that the first baptism gets you into the church. And then, it, then all you need is mutual consent from thereafter. Let me make two points about that. The church, baptism gets you into the church. What do you mean by those two words, the church? Do you mean the church in Detroit, the church in Edmonton, or the church in Greenville, or do you mean the church in some big nebulous way that covers all the little churches? And if you start talking that kind of language, I get real sick inside. Yes. I get real sick inside because then you have baptism causing the church membership and the church becomes some mystical spiritual body of Jesus Christ incorporating all churches and you are so close to rushing back into the arms of baptismal regeneration though they would deny it in most vehement language they are getting close because they are describing a body 
that if you're going to find it in Scripture becomes the body of Christ in a legal way to get into, and if baptism gets you into that, we are in trouble. Amen. Can you follow me? If that's the argument, you're baptized into the first church, and thereafter it only takes mutual consent. How does it only take mutual consent after the first one? Because churches are tied together into some big body that you got into with your first baptism? A second point. If ever mutual consent and agreement was necessary to church membership, it's necessary the first time around, not the second time. When a person is freshly converted, that's when mutual consent, public profession, public repentance is most necessary. I mean, after you've been a member of a good church in good standing for 10 years, you don't have to go through, it doesn't seem to me, the same type of a process you would have to the first time. I mean, a prostitute coming to John the Baptist, being baptized, and then joining some congregation after the day of Pentecost. She'd want to prove to that congregation, if they knew of her reputation before, that she was no longer a prostitute. But if she'd been a good member there for 10 years, going to another church, it'd be a whole lot easier going into that second church. You say, is that arguing from the lesser to the greater? Absolutely. Did Jesus ever do that? Amen. He did it all the time. If God takes care for sparrows, how much more is he going to take care of you? If mutual consent and agreement is necessary for a second membership, it certainly is for the first one. It's exciting to see them grant our position on every other church relationship. Very exciting, very gratifying, because they know that's the only way you can become a church member. But that initiating rite of baptism, getting you into your first membership, if that carries any weight to the second congregation, do you understand the implications? If baptism gets you into a local church of Christ and it carries weight to another local church of Christ, where is it carrying its weight? In some vital relationship it's created? A legal relationship it's created? I'll let you answer it because I don't know. Our two, the, the, any two churches that you might want to consider are two separate bodies, totally separate. You get them joined together and we enter into new doctrine contrary to scripture right. what about baptisms in the Bible when we look at baptisms in the Bible what do we find happening when a person's <laughs> baptized do we find people becoming church members because they were baptized who was the great baptizer by name John the Baptist were there any local churches when John the Baptist was baptizing at the river Jordan were there any local churches like at Ephesus, at Philippi, at Rome, when John the Baptist was baptizing like crazy at the Jordan River? No way. What was the church then? The church then was the nation of Israel. And they were worshiping in a temple and in synagogues. And John the Baptist was working away during that time of reformation as that church was going to be destroyed. That congregation was going to be eliminated. There were no local churches. Individuals came to John the Baptist and were baptized and entered the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ by submitting to Jesus Christ as king. He became the reigning Lord in their life. Then, as they had opportunity, and if God continued to lead them, and they had an opportunity to join a church after Pentecost, that would have taken place. There were no local assemblies like we read of in Acts in the days of John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't baptize by church authority. John the Baptist baptized by Christ's authority. John the Baptist's baptisms did not result in church membership. They resulted in a person submitting themselves and identifying with Jesus Christ. 
Now let's look at Acts chapter 8. Those are the baptisms of John. You're familiar enough with them. We could go look at the individual ones. Jesus himself didn't join any church by baptism. Jesus Christ, what did he, why was he baptized? It tells us in Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist said, I don't want to baptize you, I want you to baptize me. Remember, John never been baptized. I want you to baptize me. Jesus said, no, I need you to baptize me because I need to get into the church at Jerusalem. What did he say? He said that we might fulfill all righteousness. All the righteousness that, re that is associated with baptism was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And guess what is conspicuous by its absence? Any church membership. Do you know what he did? He justified God. He justified God. This is a godly ordinance. And I'm going to justify God by doing what God said. Now, Jesus didn't have to show any repentance in the baptism of repentance, but he showed the righteousness of the act. And I hope you can see what is not there. Jesus didn't join a church by baptism, but he fulfilled all the righteousness of that act. He didn't have any negative things to prove that he was over by going into that water baptism, but all the positive aspects of righteousness associated with baptism, Jesus Christ fulfilled them. In Acts chapter 8, verse 20, I don't want to read the whole passage. Everybody familiar with Acts chapter 8? from verse 26 through 40. Everybody should be. I mean, it's not like we've been worshiping tree trunks for the, you know, until three weeks ago. We should know our Bibles. Acts 8, verses 26 through 40, describe Philip, an evangelist, a deacon, from the church of Jerusalem, who went to Samaria in the first part of chapter 8. And then the angel of the Lord told him in verse 26, you go south on the way from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. And he went and he met a man with great authority, a black man from Ethiopia, a Gentile from Ethiopia, a eunuch from Ethiopia, who was responsible for all the treasure of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now this man was a Jewish proselyte. He had been in Jerusalem to worship God as he knew. He was reading some scripture. He must have bought, stolen, or otherwise obtained scripture from the Jews. And he was reading Isaiah 53. And we can read about it there. And Philip comes near and he says, Do you understand what you're reading? I mean, that'd be a prime candidate, wouldn't it? A man reading Isaiah 53. After having come from Jerusalem. Do you think back at the temple they were actually teaching that Isaiah 53 had just been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth? They were still cutting the throats of lambs and goats. And Philip sees this man reading Isaiah 53. And so they have a conversation. And we read in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus and church membership and the effect of water baptism. And I'm adding that to make you think. Philip preached Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. This man that you're reading about in Isaiah 53 has just been crucified and buried by the Romans in Jerusalem and he's been raised from the dead and there are over 500 witnesses. And we've been preaching in his name and performing miracles. You should have seen what I just did in Samaria. And the eunuch probably said, well, I saw what some other men, I, I think there was one named John. There was a James and a Peter back in Jerusalem. They were raising men who were, who were impotent from their mother's womb. They were handing out handkerchiefs and men were being healed. I saw some great power. Well, that is power given by Jesus of Nazareth. He's God's son. 
Can you imagine the eunuch and Philip going through this conversation together? And guess what? If you've been in Jerusalem, you also saw happening in all the water pools around the temple. You saw baptisms taking place. And the eunuch said in verse 36, See, here's water, an oasis, great timing. An oasis, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest, have, have we covered enough? Have I preached to you enough about Jesus? Do you believe it with all your heart? What I've just told you about Jesus being the fulfillment of Isaiah 53? Do you love this passage? Amen. Yeah. This is precious. Do you, I've just tried to persuade you. Do you believe it with all your heart? Don't just do it because it's convenient. Don't just do it because you partially believe. Do you believe it with all your heart? And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he stopped that chariot, and they went down both into the water. We know it was immersion. Both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Right. And when they were come up out of the water, Philip put his hands on the eunuch's shoulders and said, Now you, do you want to be a member at Samaria, or do you want to be a member at Jerusalem? Since neither of them know you, and neither of them care, since I'm just baptizing out here willy-nilly, which one do you want to join? I don't need to be sarcastic. I love to be sarcastic. And on something like this, it would come very naturally. They came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. Do you know what the eunuch knew in his new life? Jesus was the Son of God. Philip is gone. The eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. I want to say something. And you know, even for me, this is hard to say. Even for me, after four years of reading this, it is still hard to say. A person getting baptized in the name of Jesus of Nazareth and not being associated with the church and potentially never being associated with the church can still go on his way rejoicing. That's right. You know why that's hard? Because for 33 years I have been conditioned that baptism occurs in a church where you got to have the tank, just about, and it results in membership. And the two are so closely connected you can't have one without the other. But do you know why we have Acts chapter 8? To show that the two are unrelated. Right. And that man went on his way rejoicing. He wasn't grieving. What church am I going to join? There aren't any black churches yet. No second Baptist church in town. No grieving. He was rejoicing in the Holy Ghost. On his way back to Ethiopia. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And if you read Acts 21, you'll find Philip still in Caesarea. Guess what? There is no evidence that Philip ever went back to Samaria or ever went back to Jerusalem. The reason he had left in the first place is because the persecution was so great it had driven him out of that city. Would you try? To stick church membership into Acts 8. Jerusalem would have taken him. I deny that. Jerusalem would not take Saul of Tarsus, who was a Jew and a very learned man in the scriptures. Jerusalem got upset at Peter baptizing Cornelius. Now, what would they have thought of a deacon baptizing a black castrated Gentile? You say, what does that have to do? Why do you keep mentioning that word? I'll tell you why. Because those churches were made of Jewish saints and they had Deuteronomy 23.1 to deal with. Amen. And Deuteronomy 23.1 says, A man that's broken his stones shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. That's right. 
A eunuch was a stigma. <coughs> Called a dry tree in the Bible. Can you imagine that? Jerusalem turns down Paul. Jerusalem gets upset at Peter. But then a little deacon comes along and baptizes a black castrated Gentile. And they jump up and down. Oh, the Lord's added another one to his flock. Another lost sheep's been found. There isn't a bit of evidence for that. And yes, I'm getting sarcastic. I can't help it. <laughs> there isn't any evidence for that. It, right. it, it's contrary to, to your mind. It's like standing at a cliff and getting excited about it and smiling and jumping off. <laughs> Nature teaches you you don't do that. It's like holding your hand in a fire and saying, my skin's curling off. Nature teaches you you don't do that. Nature teaches you in common sense and reading the Bible tells you the eunuch didn't become a church member for having been dipped in an oasis. And there isn't one verse in all of Scripture that you can apply against this passage to make something happen here that isn't stated here. He went on his way rejoicing, and Philip left him. And it is still hard for me to say, but there may be a time when I baptize a person and they don't join a church, and they may never join a church. <laughs> and I'm I'm not, I am not entertaining you that is a frightening thought because of 33 years of conditioning that's right but if i'm going to be like philip i could do that and i could go on my way and continue my work and the person who was baptized could go on their way and be excited about what they just did they just identified themselves as being a disciple of jesus christ and that's an important thing to do and if they ever have the privilege and the opportunity of meeting up with other disciples then they would want to be in a church if they're true disciples of christ why didn't the eunuch go back and meet his new church? What's the first Gentile convert ever take, ever known by the Jewish authority of the first churches to be baptized? What's the first Gentile convert? Cornelius. Given that Peter was called on the carpet in Acts chapter 11 for baptizing Cornelius, as doing something with a Gentile, why wasn't Philip ever called in the carpet? They never knew he did it. They never knew he did it. But they had a member. <laughs> they never knew he did it. What would they have done if a deacon, not an apostle, a deacon turned evangelist had gone out and baptized a Gentile? Look what they did to Peter. Look at Acts 16. No, let's look at Acts 9. We're at Acts 8. Look at Acts 9. I don't want to go over all this because you know it. We went over it last Sunday. Ananias was a man chosen by God to be the administrator in the life of Saul of Tarsus and to baptize him. The Lord told Ananias to, baptize, to go in to Saul of Tarsus and to give him his sight and to grant him the Holy Ghost from the Lord. And he objects. He didn't want to do it because this was a dangerous man on the most wanted list of the churches of Christ. Well, I don't think they really wanted him. But he was a dangerous man. And the Lord said, go your way and do it. Verse 15, he is a chosen vessel unto me. Ananias went his way, verse 17, entered into the house. And putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized, 
And if you go read Acts 22, it was Ananias that commanded him to be baptized when he said, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. And aren't you glad we have other verses besides Acts 22, verse 16? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. He's baptized in verse 18. Verse 19, And when he had received meat, he hadn't eaten anything in three days, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Damascus did not approve the baptism of Saul of Tarsus. Neither did that baptism make him a member. Then he went to the disciples that were at Damascus. After he had got some meat and received some strength, then was he with the disciples at Damascus for certain days. Then he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then he went to Jerusalem and joined his second church. If he actually joined the church which was at Damascus. Baptism didn't get him in and baptism was not granted by the authority of that church. Ananias, where did Ananias get his authority to baptize Saul? Jesus From Jesus Christ. Where did John the Baptist get his? Jesus. And Philip get his? And everyone else get theirs? It's either from Jesus Christ directly or indirectly through a succession of ministers, not through a succession of churches. We don't believe in mothers and daughters of churches, do we? I hope not. That's right. Look at Acts 16. We believe in ministers doing the work of an evangelist creating churches by God granting the increase. Churches don't evangelize, ministers evangelize. Acts 16, this is the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas at midnight, according to verse 25, are singing and praying in prison, in the innermost prison. And there was a great earthquake in verse 26. All the doors were opened, all the bands were loosed. The keeper of the prison, being a Roman, waking out of his sleep, thinking all the prisoners will be gone, knew his own life had just was vain now because the Romans would kill him for losing the prisoners, was going to take his life. Paul cries out with a loud voice not to do himself any harm, for we're all here, no one's left. That was an act of God's providence, wasn't it? Amen. And he, and he brought them out according to verse 30. Well, he sprang for a light and he came in trembling before Paul and Silas, this Roman jailer, humbled greatly by the whole event, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. This is a historical description of what took place the night that the Philippian jail was broken open by Almighty God. I want you to notice the words, the same hour. Do you know what we ought to do with those words, the same hour? Because they occur in a verse that has baptism and preaching in it and washing stripes, we ought to conclude that they're all consequential one to the other. And that if you're baptized, then it means your stripes are washed. And if you're baptized, you ought to be baptized in the very hour you hear the gospel. What is this a description? It is a historical description. The jailer wants to know more. They tell him to believe on Jesus Christ. They preach to him the word of God. He washes their stripes and he's baptized within an hour. It is simply a description of what took place. And the Holy Spirit tells us it took place in a short period of time. I hope you remember the words the same hour. Because there are some people that make a great deal of emphasis on the words the same day in Acts 2.41. And all it is is a historical description of what took place on that great day 
the day of Pentecost. And this is a description of what took place in one jam-packed hour. That's right. And it was a good hour for Paul and Silas. It was a good hour for the jailer. Right. Verse 34, And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Isn't that amazing? He's rejoicing. I wonder on what basis was he rejoicing? What was filling his heart with joy? Please, someone help me. What was filling his heart with joy? The Holy Ghost was confirming his obedience to Jesus Christ and filling his heart with joy and his whole house. And guess what he hadn't heard about yet? A church in Philippi. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the sergeant, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this, saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. And then Paul goes on to give them a little trouble there in that town because they were Romans. <laughs> and they went out of the prison and it, verse 40 they that is Paul and Silas went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia and when they had seen the brethren they comforted them and departed there were brethren in Philippi did Paul and Silas leave the jail that night to go and ask the brethren of Philippi whether they could baptize the Philippian jailer or did they baptize the Philippian jailer because he believed in the Lord Jesus with all his house if the eunuch was added to the church at Samaria by Philip's baptism, that's where Philip was previous to the oasis, did they know they had a black member? Did they know he was castrated? Did he commune with them? Did he submit to their pastor? Did he review the character of their membership? Did they exhort one another daily? Did they mutually share joy and suffering? Were they of one mind? Did he rebuke those in error in the church at Samaria? Did he transfer later to the church in Ethiopia? Did Philip ever inform them of their addition? Did they confirm his repentance of extortion earlier under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians? Now I just made that one up. But did they get any repentance out of him? Did he confirm their rejection of Simon the sorcerer that it took place at Samaria? All those questions are unanswered because there was no relationship between the brethren at Samaria and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. He'd never been at Samaria. He was coming from Jerusalem. Did he join the church at Jerusalem? We know he did not because they called Peter on the carpet later for another Gentile, and there is no calling Philip on the carpet. And believe me, Peter was one of the pillars of the church at Jerusalem, and Philip was a lowly deacon turned evangelist. There would have been something to pay Let me read to you from a Catholic theology called My Catholic Faith. A person becomes a member of the church upon receiving baptism. Another quote. The effects of the character imprinted on the soul by baptism are that we become members of the church, subject to its laws, and capable of receiving the other sacraments. By baptism, we become members of the church and children of God. That's from my Catholic faith. Let me quote from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Baptism, one of the seven sacraments of the Christian church, frequently called the door of the church. This sacrament is the door of the church of Christ and the entrance into a new life. That's from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Now, will you, this will be in your outlines, but I want you to follow this statement. 
at the Council of Trent in the mid-1500s, because the Reformation was taking so many converts away from the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church got together the Council of Trent and came up with what they called the Counter-Reformation. We're going to take some positions to counter this exodus of members that are leaving the Catholic Church. And they came up with a whole string of anathemas where they said, if anyone says this or that, let him be accursed. If anyone says this or that, let him be accursed. And every anathema was against some doctrine taught by the Reformers. If anyone saith that Jesus Christ is not body, blood, soul, and divinity, soul and divinity present in the Mass, let him be anathema. That's how they would word it, just one after another, against all of the doctrines being taught by the Reformers and Anabaptists and Waldensians and the rest of our brethren. Here's one of the anathemas. If anyone saith that the baptized are free from all the precepts, whether written or transmitted, of holy church, in such wise that they are not bound to observe them, unless they have chosen of their own accord to submit themselves thereunto, let him be anathema. Can you follow that? Did you follow what I said? If anyone thinks that you can be baptized and it doesn't make you a church member until you voluntarily agree by mutual consent, let him be anathema. Well, brethren, I'm getting those same words, and it's not from a Catholic theology. I'm getting those words from other Baptist churches. It's not let him be anathema, let him be disorderly. I want to say this about quoting from Catholic theologies. If you can find a doctrine taught in a Catholic theology that is not in and of itself proof that it's error. Catholics also believe that Mary was a virgin. But when you can find a doctrine that is contrary to Scripture that is maintained by Roman Catholicism, I want you to remember this statement. The great whore of revelation, which is the Roman Catholic Church, is the mother of harlots, and she is the mother of abominations of the earth. She's the mother of harlots, other little churches. She's the mother of abominations, false practices. And so when you find Rome teaching something that is not taught here, you can know where it came from and why it pervades Christendom. May God save us from such error. When you start giving gospel ordinances, secret, spiritual power, that is sacramentalism. That is so close to sacramentalism because you're granting baptism this power of making you a member or resulting in church membership. That is exactly what the Catholics teach. And all you have to do is get confused a little bit about what the church is. And you've got some vital or legal relationship established by baptism. I'm not accusing anyone but Catholics and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Episcopals and Methodists and so forth of baptismal regeneration. I don't think anybody has to misunderstand me right now, but you are starting down that road. Baptism is an individual, symbolic figure, and only a figure. And it's a figure of three things unrelated to church membership. The Word of God shows us baptisms all the way through the book of Acts. We didn't look at Cornelius. We looked at the jailer. We looked at Saul of Tarsus. We looked at the eunuch. Those baptisms did not result in church membership. Church membership results when the six bonds that I've taught you are acknowledged and agreed to 
by both church and party wanting to join the church. Baptism is an individual statement and act of identification with Jesus Christ. It's the baptism of repentance, not the baptism of church membership. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word this morning. Tonight, we'll look at some of the arguments that are raised to try to establish that baptism results in church membership and answer them with Scripture.